Well, greetings, greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime. I am your host, Frank Zafiro, and this is the feature episode for April 2020. That's uh, 420 for those of you that uh, imbibe, uh, legally or illegally. Not really my thing. I prefer the grape, but uh, hey, this is your month. So (laughs) that said, uh, I don't know if Hillary Davidson enjoys the ganja at all, but I did enjoy having her on the show. And her uh, newest book, Don't Look Down, is uh, screaming up the charts, getting a lot of notice, and uh, rightfully so. So we had a great conversation, um, and we're going to dive into that in just a moment. Uh, But first, uh, let's talk to Lance Wright at Down and Out Books. Uh, Down Out Books is the sponsor of the program, and every month, uh, either Lance or Eric uh, comes on the show and lets us know what some of the bigger titles are coming from Down Out Books. Let's chat with Lance. Well, hey, Lance, welcome to the show. Happy April. Thanks, Frank. Always glad to be here. So what uh, what's on slate here in uh, the month of April for Down Out Books? Well, I picked two titles to highlight this month. The first... A Missing Shipment of Drugs, An Underground Ring of Cam Girls, and The Knights of Satan Motorcycle Club are all caught in a tangle of deals gone bad with one thing in common, a small-town teenager who recently vanished into the summer night is the premise for Jeff Hyatt's Follow You Down, a police procedural-style mystery with a strong female lead detective. Next up is some Awful Cunning, a thriller by Joe Ricker featuring an underground relocation specialist who takes on a client looking to escape criminal prosecution, but suddenly finds the tables turned when he is the one being pursued by people who will stop at nothing to have him killed. Sounds good. Um, I I also want to point out that uh, when we're talking about good books, that uh, Eric Beatner's episode of A Grifter Song hits the virtual shelves this month. Uh, The Sound of Breaking Bones, which is a great title that I understand he's had uh, waiting for the right story for some time. Yeah, this is such an exciting series. And, you know, Eric has been with Down and Out Books for many years now, and we're glad to see him contribute to the season. Well, the cool part about it is uh, it is a series, but everything stands alone, so people can buy individual copies or they can subscribe. And how would they go about doing that? Well, you can visit downandoutbooks.com slash bookstore. There's a section on the site where you can subscribe to serials, including this season of A Grifter Song. And I don't know if we've talked about it before, but uh, I'd like to also point out that Grifter's Song has been renewed for season three, and I'm already starting to get the episodes from the authors, and uh, it is uh, definitely keeping pace with the quality for sure. Well, we are very excited about that as well. Well, thanks for the update, Lance, and we will talk to you in May. Sounds like a plan. Thanks, Frank. Well, thanks, Lance. And uh, there you go, folks. Some great titles to check out. If you like dark and gritty crime fiction, Down Out Books with its imprints uh, is place to go. All right, let's, uh, let's dive into the conversation with Hillary Davidson, who, if you are a crime fiction reader, probably needs no introduction. Well, hello, Hillary, and welcome to the show. Hi, Frank. Thanks for having me here. Uh, thanks for, for coming on. I just uh, have been reading your, your latest book, Don't Look Down, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that. But I actually wanted to start the conversation um, by pointing out a couple of nexus points uh, between the two of us. 
Um, you are a Derringer winner, uh, are you not? That's right. Yes, I was lucky enough to win, I, I think, the 2015 Derringer Award mm -hmm. for a story called, um, oh, how terrible to forget the name of your own story, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, A Hopeless Case. The story yeah. was called A Hopeless Case. Yeah. Well, I've never won a Derringer Award. I have been a finalist three times. So I, I've, I've been at the wedding, but only as a bridesmaid. And, and I've been a finalist multiple times, too, and I've only won. So it's like, you know, one day, maybe this year, maybe next year, <laughs> it'll happen. It, it, I think it's also terrific because short stories are where I started writing crime fiction. I was writing short stories before I you know, ever got near writing a novel. And I feel like that is just such a, a great um, arena for writers to be working in and trying different ideas and different voices. And just it lets you be really creative when you're working on a book. It's a huge investment to you know, write 80,000 words, 90,000 words you know, following a story because maybe it won't sell. Maybe you won't find an agent for it or a publisher. Um, but with a short story, hopefully you're sort of honing your craft and um, you know, getting into different venues and learning from other writers. And it just feels like um, such a, a fantastic kind of arena to be in. Well, there's something uh, particularly satisfying too about the the completionist element of, of a short story too. You're, you know, you get to, to start it, live it and finish it all in one sitting, at least as the reader. And, uh, uh you don't get that with a novel. It, it, you know, it's much more of a journey. Yeah. And honestly, as a writer, I, I just confessed this recently to, um, to someone close to me that every time I start writing a book, I wonder if I'm going to be able to do it again and don't look down as my sixth novel. But each time I wonder, because I, I start with an idea and I kind of have a vague sense of where it's going, but there's an awful lot in between that I do not know. And I'm always wondering, can I do this? I don't have that feeling when I sit down to write a short story. I feel like, you know, my brain is large enough to sort of encapsulate this, this short story. And I know this sort of path that I want to take. And uh, there's just a lot of sort of unknown territory when you're working on a novel and that can be really hard to deal with because it's you're talking about a period of probably months at least that you're going to be working on this and not knowing whether it's going to shake out at all i think it's probably a little bit of uh, uh possibly relief uh if for some of the listeners who are maybe uh experiencing some of the same thing with their own work to know that somebody who is successful who who has managed to accomplish what you've accomplished has the same difficulties and doubts as they do i mean it's uh it's easy to forget that that uh, everybody deals with that yeah, I try to be as upfront with it as possible because when I used to go, you know, when I was starting out and I would go to panels and programs, you know, people would love to, you know, these writers that were successful would say things like, oh, you know, I, I don't need to outline. I know everything when I start. I write one draft and I'm done. And I've never been one of those writers. That's never how it's worked for me. And I'm, you know, if that's really how it works for somebody, then I think, wow, you are you are incredibly blessed. Uh, that's a fantastic thing to be able to do. But I do. I, the truth is, I suspect people are lying when they make it sound like, oh, this is just so easy. They just, you know, if it's that easy, they probably have a ghostwriter working with them, actually doing the heavy lifting because it's hard. And one of the things I've sort of been appreciating lately is that. You know, writers, we're sort of siloed. We're, you know, working on our own. Maybe we get to hang out at events and conferences and talk and that kind of thing. But you don't have um, any kind of mentor usually, like, you know, people who 
you know, work in a more traditional arena and have a hierarchy that they report to, they might have mentors and, you know, people who they can get advice from. And I find with writing that is hard. And so I try to be as open as I can be because there's no clear career path when you're a writer. There are tons of obstacles. Um, it is it is not easy, I think, for just about anybody. And so I want people to feel encouraged. I don't want people to ever think, well, you know, I'm not cut out for a writer because this is hard for me or I'm struggling with this. We are all struggling all the time. And that's the truth about it. Yeah, I'm a I'm a big hockey fan. And, and I, you know, I only ever play, you know, beer league level. And so, you know, sometimes it's kind of nice to see the, the pros, you know, whiff on a shot or, you know, fall down or whatever. And, you, and you're like, Oh, wait a minute, that's a hard sport. And so there's a reason why I find it hard, too, because even yeah. the people who are really yeah. good at it find it hard. Yeah. Exactly. And, uh, and you and you bring up a great point at that whole pay it forward mentality. You know, no matter where you are in your writing journey, there are always people who are behind you in that journey that can benefit from from anything that you're willing to do to, to help them out. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the other nexus point I was going to mention is a great example of that, of uh, someone helping writers out. Uh, and that is uh, both of us are Thuglit alumni. The magazine, oh, I um, love Thuglit, yes. <laughs> from Todd Robinson. I, I recently interviewed him, and um, and the reason I had him on the show, uh, unlike most guests who have, you know, they have a new book out or something going on in that department, uh, I just wanted to have him on because he has been the the crossroads for the connection for so many writers because he's done so much to uh, to really give uh, people a, an opportunity to be uh, in print or to be in, in a prestigious online location and and uh, and he's a good editor uh, on top of it yeah he's brilliant todd has launched so many writers careers including mine um this is one of those things i again very upfront about this the first short story that um he published of mine uh in Thuglet was called anniversary that story had been rejected by everyone and you know it's it's one of those tough things where as a writer you're thinking wow like is this story some kind of terrible you know story but i believed in it i'd worked hard on it and i felt like you know, this, you know, even if everyone's rejecting it, like it, it's just not finding the home it needs. And honestly, um, Todd was just amazing Todd, because a lot of places I felt like I wasn't getting a serious look because I had no fiction writing credentials. And so it's kind of an automatic, oh, you're a newbie, you know, in the slush pile, not interested. And Todd was not like that. Todd did not care if you'd ever been published before. It did not matter. Um, he published my first, second, and third short stories. Because after I got into Thuglet, I thought, wow, got a writing credit. Started, you know, throwing another story out there at publishers, and nobody was interested. And Todd was interested, though, when he read it. Um, so I always say, like, I would not be a fiction writer if it weren't for Todd Robinson. He's very modest. And I remember I listened to the interview that you did with him and he was saying, you know, people give me too much credit. I'm just like the club owner. And, you know, you guys came and played in my club and, you know, you did this yourselves. But without that arena of mm -hmm. Thuglet, there are mm -hmm. so many of us that never would have found a publishing home. And honestly, that first story that Thuglet published it was picked up for a best of the year mystery anthology. So oh, I always wow. think of it as like the little story that got kicked around. There's a fine line when you're a writer between um, 
kind of having a big ego and thinking your work is so great and getting constant rejection and needing to sort of be able to say, I believe in this story, even if nobody else does. And, um, you know, Todd is absolutely, you know, a person who helped me so much. When I published my own uh, short story collection a few years ago, The Black Widow Club, I dedicated it to Todd just, I mean, because he has, he has done so much um, for me, he continues to be super supportive, even though he's not doing Thuglet um, anymore. He he's just like such an amazing person, and um, I wish more people would read his books. I know he's got a huge following in France, um, mm-hmm. but I wish that you know people in North America would also clue into what a terrific writer he is. Yeah, the French and crime fiction authors are his two biggest markets, I think. Yeah. Um, and he deserves better than that. Exactly. <laughs> but you didn't come to writing uh, as a as a complete novice. I mean, you have a background as a journalist. Right. And I'd written 18 nonfiction books um, and I'd written for so many magazines. Um, the job I always joke about is that for years I was the honeymoon columnist for Martha Stewart Weddings, which honestly was a terrific gig. But when you look at what I write, now <laughs> in the crime fiction arena versus my you know yeah. happy lovely sunny yeah people would have thought story. maybe you would have gone in for cozies after yeah that. yeah people you know quite a quite a transition um so in a way i mean i was a freelance writer for a lot of years and so i had a, a really solid background in writing and you know had been really successful in that area Um, but I would say that part of the reason that I transitioned to writing fiction was that especially because I was focusing on travel stories um, more of what I was doing was being sort of circumscribed by advertisers and so one of the tough things with travel writing is you you know, can't really put negative things into a story. Back when I started out, if you were writing a newspaper story, you could. You could talk about your, you know, disastrous travel adventure. But as the um, advertising dollars started shrinking, editors got ever more cautious. And I found stories of mine um, basically being censored. I went to Easter Island and the uh, tour operator tried to scam me, even though he knew I was a journalist. Um, I was in a, a group tour, actually, with journalists, and he was shaking all of us down for extra money to take us to um, different locations, which is just, you know, completely insane. It made me think, wow, if they're doing this to journalists, what would they do to anyone, you know, who just shows up and, you know, who isn't writing about them? But I actually wasn't allowed to put that into the story. And so I found as I was traveling, I was collecting just all these little sort of dark little moments, um, kind of just, uh, you know, any time you travel, things go wrong. And I always think it's kind of, it's good to be upfront about this. It prepares people. It can make for kind of a funny story sometimes. It's not like it's the end of the world to put this into print. Ultimately, if you put that in your story and someone avoids that problem, uh, then they're going to have a better experience at that location. And that, that bodes better for the you know, for the tourist industry there anyway, right? Right. And so it, it is something, though, that worked its way into my fiction because um, so I used to work for Fromer's Travel Guides. I did a lot of the books I wrote were for them. And very early on, there was a Fromer's um, editor who went on a press trip and never came back. 
And she sort of became the inspiration for the third novel that I wrote, Evil in All Its Disguises, partly because when she disappeared, the resort that she'd been at really uh, kind of stymied the investigation. They actually trashed her in a press conference saying that she'd been, the idea was basically, well, she was doing drugs and um, sleeping, you know, with all these men, which is an absolutely insane thing to say about her, but they were trying to defame the victim and basically didn't want people to avoid, um, you know, their resort. And so even though it's not a direct analog, I wasn't directly writing about that case. I set the story elsewhere. Details are different. But um, I really did find a lot of darkness sort of in my years as a freelance travel journalist that I couldn't write about. And uh, crime writing became my outlet for that. And so um, it's like the the place where all of the, the sort of dark stories and dark thoughts kind of congregated. And I feel like it's a weird thing, like with um, Don't Look Down, it's a work of fiction. But at the same time, I was able to more honestly talk about sex trafficking and other things than like, you know, no story that I wrote that would have ever let me, you know, mention things like that going on. So it feels like very freeing in a way. Well, I definitely want to talk about that. I have a question underlined on my list here that I don't want to forget uh, before we do. And that is reference you being a travel uh, writer. Uh, do you have a favorite place that you ever went to do you, or, or one of your favorites? Oh, man, there are, you know, so many places stand out for different reasons. Peru honestly stands out as like mm-hmm. my idea of, you know, just it was heavenly in so many ways. It was beautiful sights and amazing food and so uh, many eclectic different um, places. The, the country is just so incredibly diverse. Um, so that always stands out to me. I was lucky enough to spend about three weeks there and be in uh, like several different areas. And that always stands out to me as just um, a place that I truly loved. And I've never been back. I was only there the one time. So it's definitely, you know, you're always tempted. There are always wonderful places you want to go and places you'd like to go back to. And that's probably the one that I would most love to go back to. Three weeks, that's a good amount of time. It's like it's long enough to really get the flavor of a place, but you're not dying of sickness yet. (laughs) Yeah, I was really lucky because I had a bunch of assignments from different magazines. So and and some of them, like looking back, are just, you know, kind of crazy. There's literally a spa at Machu Picchu that I was writing about. Like, it's just it sounds so ridiculous in retrospect. But um, I was really lucky because as a freelancer, I was just cobbling together work from different um, clients to sort of make a trip like that happen. So, um, yeah, I am really aware of just what incredible good fortune I had to be doing that kind of work at that time. Now, you are Canadian, right? I am. I'm I'm actually a dual citizen now. I've been living in the U.S. This is um, in the fall. This will be 19 years of living in the U.S. And um, my, my husband is an American. He's the one who lured me down here. And uh, the devil so, yeah. That is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there's a lot of going back. I, you know, my parents are still in Toronto. Family is still there. Friends mm-hmm. I grew up with, and uh, you know, I I really do miss it an awful lot, especially mm-hmm. these days. My sister-in-law is a dual citizen. She's an American who went up to Canada to marry her husband. So, oh uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so if you're listening, Anna, hello from Hillary and I. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's a funny thing with Canada is that I actually had never traveled that much inside Canada until I moved 
to the U.S., which sounds really strange. <laughs> but I basically I had uh, been to Quebec a bunch of times, Montreal mostly, Quebec City once, and um, I think I'd been out to Banff maybe once. And it's only after I moved here that I actually started exploring Canada more. And I realized like when you live in Canada, airfares are so expensive. Like it was cheaper for me to go from New York to Newfoundland than it would be to fly from Toronto to Newfoundland, at least at the time that I went. So um, yeah, I've been lucky enough to, you know, be in New Brunswick and um, like, you know, basically, uh, you know, British Columbia multiple times, like to go back and visit different parts of Canada too. But I have to admit it only happened after I moved to the U.S. That's it. That's funny. You know, not to be a tease about Don't Look Down, but we are going to get to that. But uh, <laughs> you you actually have a different series that's about three books deep already starring uh, Lily Moore. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I'm not familiar with that series. So uh, for those that aren't, how would you uh, describe it? Well, this is a serious tease because these are the first books that I wrote and they are not in print right now. I actually was lucky enough to get the rights back from Tor Forge, uh, which uh-huh. is part of Macmillan, and that was my first publisher. And uh, you know, fantasy they were... publisher, fi- fi- yeah, fantasy exactly. I, I, the funny thing about that was that I was uh, one of the very first mystery writers that they published, mm. and it was basically a completely new venture for them. Everyone knows them for fantasy and sci-fi, and mm. mystery was a really um, kind of like a little bit of a gamble for them, and it's a gamble that's paid off you know, tremendously, because they have some terrific writers working with them. But it, I will say it was hard going at, at the beginning, because as soon as stores saw a Tor Forge book, they assumed that it had to be fantasy or sci-fi. And it, it was definitely, um, you know, the staff was not used to publicizing books that were mystery, like, you know, it was definitely a steep learning curve. But the, um, the Lily Moore books are coming back into print, actually, they should be available um, in the next few months. So uh, finger crossed if everything works out as I'm hoping and uh, so the damage done is the first book in the series it was published in 2010 and it tells the story of Lily who's a travel writer and she's called home to New York when she's told that her sisters died and um, Lily doesn't have any family except for her sister who is a drug addict and who has been kind of a source of a lot of pain in Lily's life but she comes back and when she's taken to identify the body, she immediately realizes that it's not her sister. And it turns out this other woman was living in her sister's apartment and basically pretending to be her sister. And so Lily has no idea because her sister has been in trouble with the law many times. If her sister is basically uh, sort of has got some kind of scam going, is she, you know, criminal doing something wrong or is she the victim in a crime? And so that sort of is what pulls Lily. It's a very direct connection into the mystery. And then the uh, the second book in this series, and that book I should mention actually won the Anthony Award for best first novel, oh, wow. uh, which is fantastic. Yeah, that's um, a great award too. That's yeah, a, well, that's a reader's what? award for sure. Yeah, it is. And anything like that honestly gives you a boost. Um, you know, there's there are a lot of people who will say like, well, you know, awards don't really matter. And there are so many great books and get great stories that never get acknowledged by a by an award. But I will say, if you're lucky enough to get an award like that people do take notice and it absolutely, you know, is a, is a boost, um, you know, to the career. So I always encourage people like, you know, put yourself forward for an award when you can, because it, you know, it is that kind of thing that people take notice of. Um, but yeah, it so it led to me writing um, a series. So the second book is called uh, The Next One to Fall. 
and that's set in Peru, where um, one thing I did find when I went to Machu Picchu was that while the Travel Bureau doesn't publicize this, there are actually a number of people who die at Machu Picchu every year. It's a beautiful site, but they try to maintain it as kind of an intact Inca site, which means the steep staircases up and down the mountain don't have any hand railings, for instance. There are no guardrails to protect you from falling off the side of the mountain. And it rains there every day. Um, so the steps are slippery. Sometimes there are mudslides. It's at an altitude of about 8,000 feet. And so people get altitude sickness and get dizzy there. So there, there is just sort of like this little... Uh, sort of sad side note that while seeing Machu Picchu is honestly like one of the highlights, you know, of, of my life, it's amazing, but kind of an awareness that it's also a dangerous site um, in some ways. And so this, the second book is about a woman who dies at Machu Picchu and Lily is, you know, on the site and basically because of her experience in the first book, it's kind of led her to, um, you know, into investigate. Yeah, like it, it's sort of her, her start, I guess, as an amateur sleuth. And uh, the third book in the series is Evil in All Its Disguises. And that was the one where I was exper um, sort of exploring the story of a travel writer who goes missing on a press junket. And the hotel does everything it can to hide that. So yeah, so like I say, those books are hopefully coming back into print later this year. And, uh, you know, it was exciting writing that series. I will say one of the very big differences between what I was doing with the Lily Moore books and the books that I'm writing now is that those first three books were all written from Lily's perspective. So it's all a first person story and you get to really know Lily and her world really well. Um, but I think because I've experimented through short stories with so many different styles of storytelling, I was really excited. And my two latest books, One Small Sacrifice and Don't Look Down, they're told from multiple character viewpoints. Mm -hmm. And what I found while I was writing this is that it's so much more complicated to tell a story that way. It is so <laughs> much harder than following yeah. one character. But the payoff is the pacing moves so quickly mm -hmm. compared to when you're following just one character, that character can't be there for everything that happens. There right. are always going to be scenes that happen, you know, off stage, as it were, and somebody has to explain to the character what happened, you know, so you're never like always on top of the action. But when you've got multiple points of view in close third person, you can be inside different characters' heads and actually be there as the action goes down. So there's sort of always someone watching at um, what, whatever the action that's most exciting at that point in the book is, there's a character who's right there. So I actually love telling the story in that way because it does make kind of, I think, kind of a, a frantic sort of pace. It, it's meant to draw you in and, you know, not let you go. I mean, once you pick up one of my books, my hope is that I can trap you into, you know, not putting it down until the story is done there and there's something that's kind of i think fun for the reader when they're reading the pov of one character and they know things that character doesn't know it's like being in the movie theater with and you know don't open that door because you know what's behind it you know and and, yeah. and you, yeah. you can't really get that with a first person story you're always at the most exciting point in the story and that's what you've done with uh, don't look down is um multiple viewpoints i'm sitting here trying to count you've got uh, joe uh who is right the main suspect i'll say uh, i guess or, or or a victim you know yeah you, you yeah well, she definitely she's a victim but mm -hmm. you know 
I, I will say it's not spoilery since it happens in chapter one. So Joe Griever is a young woman who's being blackmailed and chapter one is her going to meet her blackmailer. Mm-hmm. And it's the first time she's ever met this um, blackmailer in person, doesn't know man, woman, is it someone from her past? Um, but she's sort of lured into this building in Hell's Kitchen, a very decrepit building. And she's um, terrified because she doesn't know if this is someone with a grudge against her. And she brings a gun to their meet, which turns out to be very lucky for her because um, her blackmailer shoots her and she shoots her blackmailer at the end of that chapter. I always hate spoilers, but because it's chapter one, I feel Mm -hmm. like that's not really a, a spoiler. So well, here's yeah. another non-spoiler spoiler. The, <laughs> the, the cops come to investigate. Um, and it, it looking at, I haven't read One Small Sacrifice, but looking at the description of it, it seems like the character that kind of uh, anchors the two is 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 the, the detective uh, Sharon. Yeah, is, is that how absolutely. you say? It? Is it yeah, Sharon Sterling. Sharon. Yeah, so she's um, so one small sacrifice was also written. The both books have four points of view, and Sharon Sterling is the only recurring character, mm-hmm. um, insofar as a, a point of view character. And uh, the books are, I should add, are even though it's a series, it's a very um, loosely connected series and so it's meant you could read them as a standalone you absolutely do not need to read one small sacrifice before reading don't look down my intent was to let the reader just pick the book up not spoil the earlier case so you're not going to get clues or fallout or understanding of you know what happened there that'll be a separate adventure should you choose to read it but um, Sharon definitely anchors the story uh, we'll get back to talking to Hillary in just a moment, but this is the time of the show that I'd like to turn things over to the experts. And by experts, I mean those people who work at bookstores, particularly independent mystery bookstores, or more recently, uh, guests that have been on this show, authors, who will tell you the kinds of books they've been reading, what they'd like to recommend uh, that you give a chance to. And uh, it's a pretty good list, folks, and one that you can't really go wrong with. So in this episode... We are going to hear from Holly West, Warren Moore, J.J. Hensley, and Sam Weep. Hi, my name is Holly West, and I'd like to recommend The Unrepentance by Ed Amar. Actually, I think he calls himself E.A. Amar. Uh, anyway, it is a book about sex trafficking, and it's done... With, it's a, such a hard topic to talk about, but he does it with grace, um, sensitivity, and the plotting is really great, great characters. So I highly recommend it. Hi, I'm Warren Moore in Newberry, South Carolina. I'm the author of Broken Glass Waltzes, and I'd like to recommend a book by an author who's known for his mystery work, but this is a, some work outside of that field. Um, the author is Lawrence Block, and I'd like to recommend his new nonfiction collection called Hunting Buffalo with Bent Nails. It covers everything from growing up as a sports fan in the New York City area to um, his account of his travels with his wife as they tried to visit every place in the United States they could find named Buffalo. There's literally something in this book for everybody. The writing is uniformly excellent, and it's well worth your time. Hi, my name's J.J. Hensley. I'm a mystery novelist. I'm going to recommend 
to people something that's a little outside my wheelhouse because uh, it's a little bit on the paranormal side, which is something that I'm not usually into. Uh, it's uh, been out there for a while. It's called Heart Shaped Box by Joe Hill. Uh, I just finished it. I finished the audio version because I go through audio books like crazy. It was uh, really it pulled me in very, very quickly. Uh, it was uh, a musician who was extremely famous at one point who liked to buy things who were, that were of the macabre and uh, kind of dealt with the occult. Uh, and somebody was selling a ghost online. And just on a whim, he kind of uh, purchased this ghost online that came attached to a suit, supposedly. Um, and then, as one might expect, uh, things did not go well from that point on. That uh, book just really pulled me in. And the uh, audio version, it was narrated by credible actor uh, Stephen Lang. So it's, it's ex extremely good for even those of us who aren't normally on the paranormal side of things. It was uh, ex extremely good read or listen. Uh, this is Sam Weeb, the author of the Wakeland series. And uh, the book that I'd recommend is Fight Like a Girl by Sheena Kamal. It's uh, marketed as a YA book, but it's full of uh, terrific action, great characters, and uh, a really unique voice. Well, there you go, folks. Between uh, Lance's recommendations and those authors' recommendations, I think uh, your reading should be squared away for a good couple of months. Uh, unless you're one of those crazy fast readers, in which case, uh, uh, please sign up for my newsletter because I love readers like you. Uh, all right, let's get back to our conversation with Hillary Davidson. Um, I always try to be upfront, and I have to admit, I did not set out to write a series that was a police procedural. Um, I wrote One Small Sacrifice as a standalone, and it was my editor at Thomas and Mercer who said, you know, this book, like this should be a series. And it didn't involve me changing the book at all. It didn't involve changing the plot or changing anything about the characters, but it made me rethink the next book that I was writing because when I sort of had Don't Look Down in mind, it was going to be a book told primarily just Joe Griever's point of view. It was really just going to be her story as someone who's um, been a victim, but also, you know, has this sort of a, a shady dark side to her as well and sort of exploring this character and instead it forced me to go back in and think no how can I tell the story in a in a different way so the four points of view are Joe Griever who like I say is the main suspect in the book um NYPD detective Sharon Sterling who's the primary investigator investigator um Sharon's partner detective Rafael Mendoza who is coming back to work after having been injured and he is um, struggling. He, in some ways, you know, is sharp and, you know, he's great at his job, um, but he's walking with a cane. He has ringing in his ears. He's dizzy and he's having trouble being honest about the shape that he's in. So it actually made for a really interesting point of view. And then the final one is um, Cal, who is Joe's boyfriend, who's sort of a wealthy to the manor born character um, who is, you know, he and his family are not everything that they seem at first. So those ended up being the four um, points of view. And the story 
primarily focuses on Joe and Sharon, mm-hmm. but uh, Cal and Raphael are really important too, and you definitely see it through their eyes. Yeah, I think Cal and Raphael would have to accept Best Supporting Actor Oscars. Right. If, if they, <laughs> Uh, whereas Sharon and, and Joe Beth are, are co-leads, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. It really let me, telling the story that way, though, let me sort of get into, um, sort of explore conflicts between characters. Mm-hmm. And so one of the uh, really interesting ones is, you know, Sharon and Raphael, they're close, they care about each other. Um, but it drives Sharon crazy to have a partner back who's not sort of working at full capacity, who sort of... It, you know, when they go to the crime scene, it's a walk up in Hell's Kitchen and they mm-hmm. have to walk up to the fourth floor and it's a struggle for Raphael. And then they interview a witness across the street who saw Joe Griever run down the fire escape after the gunshots. And that's a walk up in that building, too. And, mm-hmm. you know, she feels like he's slowing her down. But I have to admit, one of the perspectives I'd never written um, before was the perspective of, of a disabled character. Mm-hmm. And that made Raphael a really... Um, interesting challenge. There was an accident that I was in years ago where I ended up in a leg brace for months. And, you know, there are just so many things that until you're in that position, you know, people never think about in terms of accessibility and that. And it just let me sort of explore that, like as a cop who is in a macho culture and who just doesn't want to go on desk duty because there's a sense of letting other officers down if you do that, but also explore this conflict that he has with Sharon because, you know, she kind of wants him to honestly like to sort of take a back seat and he wants, you know, to be there and be involved. And so it, it was kind of when no one is wrong in a conflict, when they both have fair perspectives, mm-hmm. it, it felt like it was sort of, I don't know, adding another layer to their relationship, I guess. Well, it's a very real conflict, a very real life conflict, I think. Yeah, yeah. What I what struck me as I as I was reading, especially from Raphael's point of view, but that whole dynamic is how in this culture we equate physical ability to mental prowess, even like implicitly, even if we don't explicitly do it on purpose. And so I could feel uh, Raphael feeling like, you know, yeah, just because I walk with a cane and it takes me three times as long to get up to the fourth floor and I'm winded and wincing in pain doesn't mean I can't read the scene just as well as I used to be able to. But even if they aren't doing it on purpose, I think implicitly his partners and, and the other officers are, are, are experiencing that a little bit. At least that's, that's how I read it. And, and that is how I felt about it too. That was my sort of observation and feeling. And honestly, it's hard because I think there's sort of a level of humility that you have to have as a writer where everyone carries bias with them, you know, unconsciously. This is just part of the baggage that we all have. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I think of the times when, you know, I've been on a bus and the bus stops because there's, you know, someone in a wheelchair getting on and you're like, well, why does this have to stop? Why does this take so long? It's like you want to get where you're going. And it's ridiculous. It's like someone who has a mobility challenge needs to take the bus too. Like your time is not more important than theirs. Mm -hmm. But it's just, you know, there's that sort of, we don't look at things through other people's eyes in our daily Mm -hmm. lives. We're so busy and consumed with what's going on ourselves that you never stop and think about, you know, other people's realities. So um, 
honestly, sometimes like writing, like writing from Raphael's perspective and what he was going through and thinking about it made me feel like a jerk for all the times that I thought, like, <laughs> why can't this person just hurry up or why do we, like, it's, uh-huh. it, it's ridiculous. Like if you are able-bodied, that is, you know, a huge blessing and count yourself very lucky because all it takes is an accident. Like I say, like I was in a leg brace for, you know, months and because I was hit by a car. Um, it was, you know, it is, it is a tough thing when you can't get around like everyone else can and people will literally exclude you. So what happens in the case, and I don't think it's spoilery to talk about this, but basically Raphael feels sort of pushed to do some investigating of his own in a little bit of a different direction. And it's actually something that helps the case and also shows that he has a, you know, an amazing skill set that's different from his partners, but still, you know, really valuable. And the fact that he's using a cane and has ringing in his ears, it doesn't keep him from being this amazing part of the team. Uh, I think you captured uh, the essence of how that must feel uh, very well. Thank you. I'm honored. Thank you. Uh, I don't want to give anything more away about Don't Look Down because it you call it a police procedural, and, and it is, uh, but it says right on the cover, a thriller, and I think yeah. it's probably a little <laughs> bit more thriller than procedural if I had to wait it out. That's fair. Uh, that is absolutely true. <laughs> it's I have to ground myself in sort of police procedure and forensic um, procedure and that sort of thing, just honestly for, you know, a line here or there in the book, it, it's funny because you do all of this research and it ends up, you know, just being like two lines in a you know chapter or something <laughs> like that. And quite honestly, most of it, you, you get, um, you know, Joe Griever's perspective and she's a suspect at the center of the case and her boyfriend. I mean, this is definitely sort of like the thriller, the thriller aspect. So it's, I mean, I hope it'll be satisfying for people who love police procedurals. Well, I think so. I I think you really hit, you know, you really hit the procedural points as well. I, uh, I I guess my comment was just that uh, it does, it seems anyway to me that it does concern itself more with the thriller element absolutely police procedural backbone yeah oh it it is it is a thriller at heart no doubt about that so i don't think we can say anymore without giving things away (laughs) i know this is one of the tricky (laughs) books because anytime i've read from it i just read from chapter one and i'm like i really can't tell you anything after that but i will say that um everything in the case looks really cut and dried when the police come to the scene there's a dead body there's a man's dead body there are photographs of joe griever joe griever's card is in the man's pocket um literally everything i mean the man's computer surfaces later the gun that was used to shoot him surfaces everything um points to joe griever as as the suspect and um the reader has seen in chapter one what happened with Joe and her blackmailer. And so there's a point in the book where everything is turned on its head. And the comment I've gotten mostly is that people say, you made me go back and read everything twice because I wanted to (laughs) sort of figure out like how I had missed this because at at a certain point, everything is turned on its head. And even though it's playing fair with the reader and what you're seeing, it's not a dream. You're seeing it. This is what happened. But um, I like to play with people's assumptions about things. And there are always sort of assumptions that all humans make readers make them like you know, whatever job you do cops make them mm-hmm. um and so i like to play with that and so i i like i my hope is always that i can use people's assumptions sort of work those against them to surprise them and they're delighted when you do so if you do it fairly 
<laughs> right. Yeah. That's and that's the thing. They they do need to see this stuff happen. It's a little bit like you're you're pulling back the sort of the uh, the curtain to to let them know because you see the mechanics of it. If you go over it the second time, it'll be like, ah, uh, why did I not see this? But yeah, that's um, when you're caught up in the, the part of it is the pacing. When you're caught up in a thriller, you know that that pacing is keeping you going, and you're not stopping and analyzing every moment and every interaction and every clue. Yeah, I can't watch The Sixth Sense now without hitting myself repeatedly on the head because I guess everything. I always guess. Right. I mean, that's, that's part of being a cop. You ask every, any cop out there and they're going to tell you they're in the high 90 percentiles for guessing plots of particularly crime fiction related movies. And it is so obvious when you, you know, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen a 1996 movie, then. Right. Know. I think it's fair at this point, <laughs> more than 20 years later. I really think. But it's so obvious, it. right? I mean, when you look at yeah. it, I mean, there's yeah. so many things that are so obvious, but that's the magic of it is that the storytelling was done in a way that is straightforward and it plays upon your expectations and your assumptions, but right. it does so fairly. And the reason I didn't guess, I don't know, did you guess before the end of it? No, no. Okay. I honestly, why didn't I why didn't you, why do you think you didn't? Oh my goodness. Um, I think it's it set everything up. I mean, it's so obvious now in retrospect, and I haven't gone back and rewatched the movie, but it was just it was like my assumption going into it, right? That this was, you know, here you have this man who's trying to figure out this puzzle, and you have this boy who, you know. He sees dead people and it's like this kind of creepy, creepy kid aspect. And honestly, I think my focus was on the creepy kid. Exactly. Yeah. Right? I like think, that was sort of, it was thing. almost like a distraction. Like mm-hmm. that was where my brain went. Like that's the creepy aspect. Yeah, you're trying to figure out that mystery and you're so engaged in that mystery that you don't even consider the mystery of of the, the psychologist. Of the right, therapist. exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. But it's glaringly obvious afterwards. I, I, wrote, <laughs> I wrote about this in a blog a, a couple of, quite a few years ago when when the walking dead pulled their glenn fake out episode i don't know if you watched that show yeah i don't watch that show so this i I don't know well it 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 just was to speak to the fairness that you bring up that uh you know you can you can fake people out all you want as long as you do so fairly and uh and they didn't really they they pulled what i called a glenn anigan when they did this with uh with glenn you know and and pretended they killed him and they didn't but the way that they went about it really wasn't fair uh, and they left people hanging for like three episodes while they explored other storylines before coming back and showing you the the lame way that they oh, didn't actually kill that him. would just frustrate you know? me that's yeah <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and, and, and the character eventually does die and so it actually takes away from his his actual death i think because of the fake out that they did earlier on um but you have been very fair in this book um and so i don't think people will feel like that but uh what's next what's next yeah. now don't look down just came out so you're gonna ride that way for a while and do right all the, sure. you know it's so funny though because by the time a book comes out i'm already up to my eyeballs in the next book and though this one i have to confess uh we, will be a departure from the series i'm actually writing a standalone novel uh this is only the second ever standalone that i've done so um I'm excited about that. It feels a little funny because I'd actually started writing the third book in the series uh, with Sharon Sterling. And I, at the same time though, I had an idea for a standalone that I was passionate about. And, 
you know, my agent uh, pitched it to my publisher and they got so excited about it that it ended up turning into my next book. <laughs> so, um, which is funny because it feels very unformed. I don't have a title for it yet. I can tell you that the story is told from two perspectives. Um, one is from a, a sort of a black sheep of a family who's uh, sort of really sort of picture perfect sister uh, who's lived a very perfect life dies and uh, you know the black sheep of the family is convinced that this was a murder and the other perspective is the dead sister's husband um, and a lot of the book is sort of uh, excavating their hidden but like really troubled relationships so yeah so it's kind of um, interesting to have these two really intense perspectives that are diametrically opposed and have family secrets coming out so that book will be out in uh, the summer uh, summer next year i want to say june i think but um i don't even have a title to tell you so <laughs> i'm sorry about that no, um, coming up more quickly uh just actually in a couple of weeks uh there'll be a book called the swamp killers a novel and stories that was edited by Ed Imar and Sarah Chen. And that'll be out from Down and Out Books. And I have a story in that. So the idea is sort of to tell a novel and stories. It's like a follow-up to The Night of the Flood from uh, mm -hmm. a couple of years back. Uh, so that'll be coming out, uh, which I'm excited about because it's always fun to work with a group of writers and see everybody's sort of take on the same um, prompt. Like we all go in just wildly different directions. So that'll be out soon. But in terms of novels, the next one will be um, the summer. Oh, but as I said, my, my first three books uh, should be out um, this summer. So um, I will let you know when that's coming. But The Damage Done, the next one to fall and Evil in All Its Disguises should be out this summer. Well, that I uh, look forward to that, and um, I look forward to catching up with you at, at one of the conferences. I'll be at Left Coast Crime here. Oh, fantastic! Uh, I'll be there so, too. Yeah, oh, oh, that's yeah, great. We'll, we'll raise a glass. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time to interview me today, Frank. It was a pleasure. Oh. All right, there you are, folks. A pretty good picture of who Hillary Davidson is. As I mentioned, a very nice lady, good writer. A uh, good person, and uh, well, she's Canadian. And I notice I've been saying nice about a lot of the guests lately, but when you look back, uh, most of them are either Canadian or from the South. So I guess that tells us something about those cultures uh, in a positive way. Next episode on Wrong Place or Right Crime, we're going to go to the South, but uh, more to Southern California uh, and talk to Paul D. Marks one of my fellow bloggers at Seven Criminal Minds. And uh, recently he sent me his book, White Heat, uh, which was an award-winning novel that takes place right before and then during the Rodney King riots uh, in 1982. Uh, and he really captures the craziness of the situation, or at least as I would imagine it to be. And so we had a fun conversation about that and a few other things. So that's next episode on Wrong Place or Right Crime. A uh, quick Zafiro note before I go, uh, no new books coming out. Uh, my most recent one in the cut is still available from Down Out Books. But The Concrete Smile, which is the first episode of A Grifter Song, also published by Down Out Books, is a finalist for the Derringer Award. There are five finalists in each category. Uh, some pretty stiff competition, and if I'm being honest, I don't expect to win. But it is really cool uh, to be a finalist. 
I'd like to say thanks to Hillary for coming on the show. Thanks to Down Out Books for being a great sponsor, as always. And uh, thanks, Holly and JJ and Warren and Sam for making some great recommendations that I hope uh, at least one of them will uh, be a book that you check out. Uh, most of all, thanks to you, the listener, because you fired this podcast up and you're still listening at this moment. Uh, there wouldn't be any reason to do this, or at least to record it, <laughs> if it wasn't for you. Uh, so uh, thanks for sticking with me. I appreciate it. Paul D. Marks is our next guest, as I mentioned. And until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime. <laughs>